this is Allison Sheridan of the Gas Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, May 22nd, 2022, and this is show number 889. Our guest this week on Chit Chat Across the Pond is John Syracuse of the Accidental Tech Podcast, Reconcilable Differences and Robot or Not. He's also the developer of two interesting Mac apps, Front and Center and Switch Glass. You can find his blog over at hypercritical.co, and you can find him on Twitter at Syracuse. Now, I've been a fan of John's for a very long time, but I never knew anything about his background, so I asked him to start at the beginning and explain where he came from. It's a very funny answer to that. Anyway, next I ask him some questions about screen brightness and arrangement of windows that I've been I've heard him talking about on his shows, and I've always wanted to investigate his ideas about this further. Then we got into a super meaty discussion where he explains display technology from LCD to OLED to QD OLED, also known as quantum dot OLED. Now I've learned about these through Know a Little More on Tom Merritt's fantastic show, but I still wanted to have the conversation with somebody where I could get even deeper. And John does a great job of breaking it down and explaining it to it uh, to us how this all works. And he does a little hand waving on the whole quantum dot thing, but he gets as media as we can. Anyway, John was as delightful as I had hoped. He was as knowledgeable as I'd expected. And I had a fantastic time with him. So I hope you'll go into your podcatcher of choice and look for Chit Chat Across the Pond Light and look for the episode number 729 with John Syracuse. Back in March, I told you the story of how I wrote a shortcut with a shell script to mount a share on my Synology network-attached storage. That's also called a NAS. I said that I had made fire because I was so proud of myself. I taught myself to write shell scripts, and I taught myself how to use shortcuts, if in a rudimentary way. The problem I was solving with this script-slash-shortcut solution was that Hazel would become a real nag when I was off my network, and it wanted to move files as I had directed it to. If it can't find the servers to move the files to, what else can it do but give me constant notifications that the server isn't there? As happy and proud as I was to have solved this problem, I knew that embedding a script into a shortcut was a bit of a kludge. I knew that a shell script could do all of the work, and it didn't need the fancy pants shortcut helping it. Now, I have learned through this exercise that shortcuts, at least on the Mac, are fragile. They seem to break without provocation. I've actually been able to create shortcuts that immediately crash the entire shortcuts app. My shortcut to mount my NAS share is no exception to this fragility problem. It worked flawlessly when I wrote the original article, but within a week or so, Hazel started complaining about it. Now, it was an odd kind of a failure, because when Hazel would run, it would give me a notification that said, shortcut failed, could run shortcut, colon, dot. That's, That's super helpful. I contacted the awesome developer of Hazel, Paul Kim, and he went back and forth with me quite a few times reviewing my script and shortcut and the Hazel logs. After numerous exchanges, we came to the conclusion that Mac shortcuts are not ready for prime time. This exchange with Mr. Noodle himself was back in March, and for the past two months I've been watching my Hazel scripts fail, dismissing the error messages, and then manually moving my files to my NAS as they go stale on my internal drive. I finally found myself with some uncommitted time and decided to buckle down and write the rest of the shell script and eliminate shortcuts from Hazel. Writing the script to do this reminded me of my father's complaint about when he would go into his, to build something in his shop. He would describe going into the shop and realizing his workbench was covered with tools and sawdust and drawings. 
As he was putting the tools away to start the new project, he'd noticed that maybe the leg of the workbench was wobbling. He'd find some wood to make a shim and reach for a circular saw only to notice that the blade had to be replaced. He'd go to a stash of blades and trip over something that had fallen. Anyway, this process would go on for hours and he would never be able to get started building the thing he went into the shop to create. Starting to work on my script was exactly like that. Here's what I did on day one. First, I wanted to modify the existing script, but since it was technically working for the part it was supposed to do, I wanted to have a history of my changes. I pretty much needed a version control system to keep that history, and the obvious choice to do this is to use Git. In Programming by Stealth, we've learned how to use Git over a series of lessons, so I'm super comfortable with it. To use a version control system, you have to have a local repo or repository, and then you have a remote repo. You make changes locally, and then you push those changes with messages to yourself about what you did. You push those to the remote. So normally we use a web-based repo called GitHub, but I thought, you know what, this would be a fun opportunity to try using my Synology for the remote repo. Setting up Git on my Synology required command line access. I could have easily used the built-in terminal app to use this, but Bart had just told us about a nifty new command line app called Warp, so I downloaded and installed Warp and decided to use that. But I didn't know how to use Warp, so I had to find and read the documentation on Warp. Now, to connect to the Synology, I needed to turn on SSH, and that allows you to create a secure shell into that server. I searched the web, and I figured out how to turn it on on the Synology. Now, I remembered that Bart had taught us how to enable a remote that's not on GitHub, but I didn't remember how to do it. So I went back and I read PBS 113 on how to enable a remote for GitHub, or sorry, for Git. I successfully connected using SSH with Warp to enable a Git bare repo on my Synology. All right, I'm getting somewhere. Now in Git, I tried to access the remote on the Synology, but something was wrong with my syntax. Since this process at this point was getting kind of complicated, I decided I better record everything I'm doing in case I ever want to do this again. I generally document purely text-based instructions for myself using the app KeepIt from reinvented software. So I popped that open. I discovered that KeepIt had a huge update to version two that Steve Harris never told me was coming. Anyway, I rely heavily on this app, so I immediately downloaded Keep It 2.0. It downloaded a free 15-day trial, but of course, I wanted to buy it sight unseen. But now I had to decide whether to buy directly from Steve Harris and give him the 30% instead of the Mac App Store. But before I could do that, I really wanted to know, did I originally buy it from the Mac App Store the first time, or did I originally buy it from him? Now, to answer that question, I opened my mind mapping software, iThoughts. That's where I've documented all of the apps I install when I do a new can pave, and I collect all the Mac App Store apps together. So I knew that it would be faster to look here than scrolling through my Mac App Store purchases looking for it because the App Store doesn't have a search. Why Apple? Well, at least your, your purchases don't. Anyway, I confirmed that I had bought it directly from Steve. So I bought the upgrade license to keep it 2.0, and I shook my fist at the purchasing software MindSpring for insisting I tell it my phone number and address. You know what? This is why people like the Mac App Store. Anyway, I received the email with the license. The first thing I do when I receive a new license key for software is to enter it into one password. Finally, I was able to start documenting my process and keep it. At this point, I realized I needed to figure out how to share my public encryption key with my Synology so that every time I try to push a Git change to the remote, I wouldn't have to enter my password. Well, I didn't remember how to share my public key with the server, so I looked up the Taming the Terminal lesson where Bart taught us how to do it. 
Using what I learned from BART, I found and followed the Synology-specific instructions, and yet I still had to enter my password every time I tried to put, push my Git changes to my Synology. You will notice I have not yet written a single line of code for my new and improved script after all of this. I'd had a lot of fun along the way, but by this time, I decided I'd just go watch Star Trek for a while and try again in a few days. Anyway, I finally got SSH working later when I got a fresh start. All right. By the way, this is a story about Keychain, but I'm going to get to it. I'm not there yet. So now it was time to finally start working on the script. As a reminder, a shell script is just a way to put a bunch of terminal commands together. That means it's easy to test because you can type it into the command line in terminal or warp, and if it works, you plop what you wrote into your script. As a smidge of a review, the script in its original state determines whether my Mac and the Synology are on the same network. If they are not, then the script should do nothing at all. If they are on the same network, the script passes off this information to the shortcut. The only function the shortcut did was to actually mount the appropriate share on my Mac so that Hazel could start copying to it. Now, the easy way to mount a share from a NAS is to select the Finder menu Go, Connect to Server, or use the keyboard shortcut Command-K. From there, you enter the connection information for the server share you want to mount. The protocol I use is SMB, so the connection to my share is SMB colon slash slash the IP address, which is 192.168.4.95 slash Sonoto dash L dash backup. Now, you see, I was in the thick of rewatching Deep Space Nine when I got my Synology, and Odo is my favorite character in Deep Space Nine, hence the name Sonoto for my Synology. And this is the share for my backups. That's why it's called Sonoto Al Backup. Now, the first time you connect in this way, you'll be prompted for your login credentials. That makes sense, right? And at that prompt, you can tell macOS to save your password in iCloud Keychain. I set this up years ago when I got my Synology, and it allows me to hit Command-K, select from a saved list of server shares, hit Enter, and I'm in. But right when I wanted to write a script to do the same function from the command line, the Command-K connection to my Synology added an extra step. It didn't prompt me for my login credentials, but it did pop up a window that said, you are attempting to connect to the server 192.168.4.95. Click connect to continue. Now, it's not a huge deal to have to cl click that connect button when using command K from the GUI, but it's catastrophic to the command line script since it has no way of doing that confirmation. And more importantly, why is it asking me this now? It never did this before. Just like my dad in the shop, I couldn't start until yet another problem was fixed. I knew that the problem had to be in that pesky iCloud keychain. Now, I'm not an expert at keychain, but it's not that complicated, so I figured I could get it sorted right quick. The app where these credentials are stored is called Keychain Access, and it's in slash applications slash utilities. Now, you'll find an alarming number of entries in Keychain Access when you first open it, but don't let that freak you out. To find the correct entry, I searched for the IP address of my Synology, and that gave me just the ones I wanted to look at. Now, Keychain Access entries have two tabs, Attributes and Access Control. In Attributes, you'll find the name, which in this case had been entered as the IP address of that server. Kind had been pre-populated with Network Password. The account name was my login name to the Synology, Podfeet, you get where I know where I get that. Then where it shows the SMB connection I specified earlier, it says it's going to be SMB colon my IP address slash the share. Now the password is not shown, but I verified it was correct by hitting the show password checkbox and entering my max login credentials to be allowed to see it. Okay, so far everything looked right. Now the access control tab has two radio button options, 
allow all applications to access this item, or confirm before allowing access. And then within confirm, there's a sub option here to ask for keychain password. Confirm before allowing access was selected. Below these options is a section that says always allow access by these applications. Now, when you authorize a password to a network device and save it to Keychain, it automatically adds three items specifically to mount those network volumes. NetAuth sysagent, NetAuth, I'll get it right yet, NetAuthAgent.app, and NetAuth. All three of those applications were added to the Keychain access entry for the share on my NAS. Now, I have a Drobo as well, which was still successfully responding to my request to mount its shares and not prompting me to push the connect button. I compared every detail of the two entries in Keychain, and they were identical. That got me to thinking, maybe the problem was on my end on my Mac, but maybe the Synology itself was responding in some weird way, and that was causing the extra prompt. So I woke up my 2016 MacBook Pro, and I tried to connect to the Synology shares, and it worked perfectly without prompting me to hit that pesky connect button. I also tested from Steve's Mac Studio, and he was also able to connect to server on the Synology without the extra prompt. So I was back to the problem being on my Mac. So I, next, I deleted all the SMB entries in Keychain to this server. I do have an SSH entry that I prefer not to delete, and I did leave that one, but I deleted the other ones and I recreated them. I repeated that step, but I did a re reboot after deleting and before recreating. In both cases, it still didn't work. I tried disabling iCloud Keychain and repeated the delete recreate steps, but still no joy. Finally, in an act of desperation, I called AppleCare, where Juan searched for over 50 minutes for any reference to this problem. He was really annoying. The entire time he was researching, he didn't talk to me at all. He didn't give me any feedback. I would ask him, well, so what are you doing? And he would say, I'm still looking. I wasn't sure he wasn't just watching TikTok on his, and listening on his headphones, but was really researching. But after 50 minutes, he was unsuccessful. He opened a ticket and he never followed up at all. I did not like one very much. All right, it was time to bring out the big guns. I reinstalled macOS over the top. Now, this isn't nearly as scary as it sounds. You do need to figure out how to reboot into recovery mode for your particular Mac, but once you crack that code, Apple have a, a very good step-by-step -step support article. It walks you through how to do it. You want to do a backup first, of course, but it just replaces system files that may have gotten corrupted and then theoretically doesn't mess with your data. But like I said, run a backup first. After reinstalling the operating system, I still got the pesky prompt. Even though Keychain was set identically to my older Mac, I tried messing with the access controls. If having confirmed before allow access set and, allow, and allowing that net auth system stuff be allowed didn't work, maybe I should just allow all applications access to the system. Believe it or not, that made things even worse. With that setting, when I tried to connect my, to my Synology, it asked for my Keychain password, which is the inverse of what I would expect. Well, every few days, I went back to the Googles trying to find some way of phrasing my search that would avoid the password prompt problem and just have the connect button problem because a lot of people have the password prompt problem and then the explanation is not what I need. So I just need that connect button problem. Finally, after more than a week, I struck gold or I don't know, at least iron. I found an archived Apple support article back from the macOS Sierra days entitled, if you're asked to con click connect before reconnecting to a server. The premise of the article is, quote, when connecting to a server that requires a username and password, macOS Sierra 10.12 or later asks you to click connect, 
even when the name and password have been saved in your keychain. This helps you avoid transmitting login credentials to a server you didn't intend to connect to. Well, it goes on to explain how to disable the security feature so that you can connect without providing additional information. The fix is via a terminal command that looks kind of scary, but it's pretty easy. The command changes a preference file called com.apple.networkauthorization, and it changes one line to allow all unknown servers. In macOS, if you're willing to go under the hood, you can change the default preferences by issuing what's called a default write command. Now you have to be administrator to do this, so you add the word or you add the super user do command at the front, which is sudo. So the command comes out sudo defaults write. So you're going to change a default by writing to it, and you're using super user do. Anything you try to change with this command will then prompt you for your admin password. With these defaults in preference files, you tell it to set a Boolean to yes or no. Boolean literally means yes or no or true or false. So we're going to tell it to do the uh, defaults right, and we're going to use a Boolean to tell it yes or no. So putting this all together, we get sudo defaults right, that name of that uh, preference file. Then it has allow unknown servers dash bool yes. That's a lot to read, but I've got it in the show notes, of course. If you ever want to undo a change like this, it's pretty easy. You issue the same command, but instead of dash bool yes, you send dash bool no. Now, I told you that sounds very scary, but knowing you can undo changes means it's pretty safe to do. One of the ones I used to set all the time was to turn off the automatic drop shadows Mac OS puts on all screenshots, and that's another default's right. So the good news is that changing this preference to allow all unknown servers successfully removed the need for me to hit that annoying connect button when connecting to my Synology. While joyous, I ran it by Bart to make sure this wasn't some big dumb security hole I was opening, and he said it wasn't a problem, and that in fact, he vaguely remembered doing it himself a few years ago. If you've changed a preference with a defaults write, you can check the status by issuing a defaults read command against the same preference. I woke up my slumbering 2016 MacBook Pro and I asked it, did I ever change that network authorization preference? But I had not. So I will still continue to lie awake at night trying to figure out why I needed to do this in the first place, but at least I'm back in business. I would also like to point out that like my dad in a shop, I still have not gotten started on my bash script. Longtime listeners will remember frequent contributor to the show, Kaylee Dio. She even had her own podcast. I loved having her on Chit Chat Across the Pond and getting recordings from her and just chatting with her in general. When things got bad in the past couple of years, she went off the grid. I missed her terribly and I worried about her even more when I didn't hear from her for a full two years. I'm delighted to tell you that she has resurfaced with this somewhat wistful look back on the iPod and what it meant to her. Hi. Hey, how's it going? You've been doing okay the past couple years? Yeah, me neither. <sighs> Modern life, am I right? You know, I'm definitely still a geek, but the further we go into the future, the more I find myself longing for the past. Well, at least parts of it. But more than anything, I miss those days of bright, shining optimism. The promise in the past of a better future yet to come. The end of the iPod era brought back a flood of memories. While I grew up using Apple IIe and Macintosh computers at school and friends' houses, my family couldn't really afford to buy a Mac for ourselves. Instead, 
I ended up building my own Windows computers over the years from spare or budget parts I was able to salvage. I made do with what I was given. I made the best of the situation. But I always longed for what I thought I couldn't have. That kind of sums up my childhood, I guess. My first MP3 player was called the MP Trip. Released in May 2000 and priced at around 100 US dollars, it was a typical CD player offering 50-second anti-skip protection as well as random shuffle and repeat playback modes. But there was one more thing, a feature. It could play MP3 files burned onto CDRs. That's right, up to 170 MP3 formatted music files, to be exact. This meant that I could keep my CDs on the shelf and just carry around a couple burned discs with hundreds of songs. It was so cool! It was also admittedly quite clunky. The screen was teeny tiny, making it difficult to find a particular song. It definitely worked best just letting it play straight through, and it devoured batteries. But it was mine! And I still think about it from time to time when I pop on one of those classic J-pop albums of the era that I listened to on repeat until the AA batteries died. Sadly, that MP3 player was lost in the great cat pee incident of the mid-aughts. I came home one day to find nearly everything in my room had been placed on the curb in rubbish bags. Supposedly, the cat had peed on it all. Everything. All of my prized possessions carefully hidden away in boxes, out of sight and under the bed. All the things I hadn't been given, but had managed to acquire on my own, despite what my mom or the world might think. I wanted to cry myself to sleep that night, like I had so many nights, listening to my MP trip. But it was gone. I felt betrayed, ashamed, but I forged on. And when I finally had money of my own, I was able to buy a replacement for myself, a fourth-generation iPod. The iPod was just cool. I remember the box it came in. It was shaped like a cube and incredibly colorful. The four main sides of the box were blue, yellow, pink, and green. I always made sure that the pink side of the box was facing front on the shelf in my room. I remember walking to university with it, listening to the score of Dawson's Creek as I waited for the train to go by. I remember loading it up with the latest Utada Hikaru CD that the exchange students had recommended. I remember cranking up the volume and grinning ear to ear to the Buffy musical soundtrack after my friend decided my new name should be Kaylee. I remember dancing with Ikimono Gakari in AKB48 down Boylston Street on the way to Japanese meetup smiling up at the Apple Store where I had purchased my second Mac, a MacBook Pro. I remember long train rides with Sakamoto Maya and James Taylor, emotional evenings with Zone, Yui, and Michelle Branch, trick-or-treating with Sailor Moon, all-night events with Momoito Clover Zed, 2 a.m. bike rides with One AirPod and Carly Rae Jepsen. Because somewhere along the way, the iPod became an iPod Touch, and the iPod Touch became an iPhone. I even went wireless after my headphones got tangled around a corner and took out the screen. My very first trip to the Shinsaibashi Table of Sadness. I still miss the headphone jack, 
I always will, even if I love my AirPods Pro and even if a USB-C iPhone would give me just one dongle instead of two. That's what's amazing about people. There's such a wide variety of us out there. Some prefer music on a big stereo system, and some are happy with their phone speaker. Some want flack files, while others like vinyl or mini-disc. And some would simply prefer to listen to a podcast, thank you very much. And that's okay. But I worry about a world that starts telling people like me that the way we survive our lives is wrong. The world is hard enough to survive as it is, on top of being told to stay in our litter box, or, uh, I mean, little box. That the way we're trying to weather the storm of life is making others feel scared or uncomfortable when we just want to do our business and move on. For me, at least, when the world gets harsh, as it has been so often in the past few years, I like to tune everything out and listen to the songs I've collected along the way. Sometimes the clouds part and the day is saved. Sometimes the tears just fall on the pillow in complete darkness. But those songs are more than just files to me. Unlike the vast ocean that is music streaming, they're specific memories of the ports I've visited along the way. They're poetry and words helping to make sense of today and steer the ship towards a better tomorrow. And while that fourth-gen iPod is gone, I kept an iPod Classic around. I'm recording on it right now, in fact. Maybe it's the feel of the white earpods cable on my cheeks. Maybe it's the warmth of that Wolfson DAC. Maybe it's just nostalgia. But there's something magical to me about that special box, size of a deck of playing cards, that holds eight. 15,000 hand-selected songs, my battle songs, the songs of my life. Kaylee, that was a beautiful piece, and it was, as Steve just said to the live audience, it was really almost like poetry. I really want to thank you for sharing your feelings with us, and I'm so happy to know that you're somewhat okay. At least you're, at least you're still there. And it's also really interesting to me that technology does get interwoven into our emotions in this way. Well, I am delighted to tell you that Michael DeStefano Jr. and Dex are both our heroes of this week. They know that everything good starts with podfeed.com, so they both went to podfeed.com slash Patreon and pledged to support the Nocella cast and all of the fine shows we do here at the Podfeed Podcast. Their contributions will help keep the microphones live, the servers humming, and all of the tools efficient for me to continue the shows. Thank you so much, Michael and Dex. You rock. Well, back by popular demand, my buddy Ron is here on the show. You may remember him from his famous review of the Aura Ring. How are you doing tonight, Ron? Doing great. Thanks. All right. I, he's got his glass of wine. I got my gin and tonic. So we thought, uh, we thought what fun would it be? To talk about docking stations, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Ron is our kind of people. He loves this kind of stuff. So um, you bought a new dock, a Thunderbolt dock, and you went down a different path than anybody I know. And I think it's uh, really interesting because we had talked a little bit about what the options were, but you went on your own path and you uh, did come up with a different solution. So why don't you start us off with uh, what, why were you looking for a Thunderbolt dock? So after uh, 10 or 15 years of thinking about going to a single Mac approach for home, uh, I finally decided to get a uh, 
wonderful new 14-inch MacBook Pro M1 Max and basically uh, convert everything else I had, put it all on that one machine and use it both as my quote-unquote desktop as well as a laptop. So you've you've had an iMac for a long time and a MacBook Pro. You've been balancing those two and having to coordinate between them. Exactly. Now, I thought it was easier to go to that now because so much is in the cloud, but there's still stuff that ends up on the wrong computer. There is. So one of my motivations was that I was tired. I don't have a lot of material that I synchronize, but I had enough that rather than just put it all in one cloud, I thought I'd also have it all on one machine. So. You know, I, I, I love that you did this because that's how I've lived for a long time. And people are like, why don't you get an iMac, Allison? I said, well, because then I'd have two and then I'd have to deal with it and I can have one and it seems to work really well. Right, right. That was So that was my prime motivation. And then when I realized that I still had a lot of peripherals that I normally had connected to the iMac primarily, uh, then I was looking for a solution to that. Oh, okay. So so you wanted to live the one cable lifestyle. Is that what you were looking for? Pretty much. <laughs> All right. So um, you've got, uh, if you've got the M1 Mac, are you just using that or do you have an external display? So I do have uh, an external display, which is a Samsung 32-inch, uh, relatively new, a couple of years old, which I was using as an external secondary monitor with my iMac. Okay. All right. So you need to connect that. Uh, what, are, what are all the other things you needed to connect in order to live the dream of one cable? <laughs> so I had three external hard drives, and I won't go into why I have three external hard drives because <laughs> no one wants to hear that. But It's shameful. but It, it <laughs> is, but uh, one of those is a time machine backup. Um, I also, of course, have an Ethernet hardline connection that I want to preserve. Sure. Uh, I have a high-speed scanner. Uh, I have a the, the Samsung monitor. And how did that connect? The Samsung was connected through an HDMI okay. into the iMac. All right. So the, the MacBook Pro has a, an HDMI connector, much to my chagrin, wasting <laughs> my fourth USB-C connector, but we won't go down that road again. But uh, okay. And then uh, I also have the, the Stream Deck input device. Oh, right, right. And I have, uh, courtesy of you, actually, I have a nice external 10, 1080p webcam. Right, so that's more USB. Right, and then I have a couple of other USB-A devices that I smattering use now and again, and um, you know, including flash drives and so forth. Okay, all right. So uh, you used to plug all this into the back of the iMac. You needed now you don't want to use up all your ports, and of course, none of your ports have USB-A, which is fine, right? <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> All right, so uh, what other did you have other specific things you wanted to gain in uh, going with a dock? I guess I, I wanted something that was fairly low profile. Um, I certainly didn't want something that was making a lot of noise. Mm -hmm. And I tend to buy something and keep it for a very long time until it falls apart or I fall apart. And so I wanted something that was pretty well made. Uh, yeah, you're not you're I would never put you in the Luddite category. You know, you're not going, I'm on Final Cut One and it's the best <laughs> thing ever. No, you move on with technology. But if you can buy something that especially a kind of a utilitarian device like that, like it, it, you had the same uh CD burner or something for a hundred years and <laughs> until it died on you. But uh it, that's the kind of thing you mean. The utility devices should just they should just go. They should. And and I guess one other thing that I discovered when I started looking at the available options for, for a docking station was that some of these had certain utility when you paired them with 
software drivers and so yeah. forth. And I absolutely <laughs> did not want to deal with any more drivers than I had to. I've complained on the show about my Universal Audio Thunderbolt uh, microphone interface that was $700 and I got rid of it for $150 Elgato Wave XLR. <laughs> and the best thing was there was no software. And I was just complaining to Steve today because they have this uh, the, web page that tells you how to uninstall all this <laughs> I'm sorry, crapware that they put on your system. And uh, and you follow the instructions. It says, okay, it, you go find the application, your applications folder. The uninstaller is right there. Now, after you run it, you got to go into slash library, slash preferences, slash com dot, blah, 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 blah. And so you have to delete all these P lists and all this junk. I'm still getting the notification that the Universal Audio uh, driver is deprecated in the next version of, o of Mac OS. I said, well, where is it? You didn't tell me. How is it still there? Anyway, I am a fan of the no software driver option. Yes, I call it the go to the freezer, get the box. I just want a hardware box. I want to plug everything in. And I want to be and, done with it. And be go, right? <laughs> now, uh, is Thunderbolt important to you? Thunderbolt is because, as you said, I'm not a Ludite, and I've been moving to Thunderbolt with as many peripherals as I can. Sometimes I have to use adapters and so forth, but everything going forward. And so I wanted something that was Thunderbolt-centric, uh, and I wanted now, to... You mean USB-C centric or Thunderbolt centric? No, Thunderbolt centric. Okay. All right. And so that was the first thing I typed into my Amazon search was I want a Thunderbolt docking station. Right, right. And so, um, so yeah, Thunderbolt was important. USB-C was important. Uh, all the modern interfaces had to be right. there. So to everybody listening, again, USB-C is the shape of a connector and Thunderbolt is a protocol. Thunderbolt 4, USB 4, we don't want to go down that whole road. But USB or Thunderbolt, fast, carries a lot of different kinds of things. Carries audio, carries video, carries data, charge. You got all that stuff in there, right? All right. So you did want to go down that direction. And um, so what were the, what were the options you, uh, you looked at out there? Well, as I, uh, as I suspected, unfortunately, there you know, were a zillion of these <laughs> things. And so I, I tried really quickly to filter down to something that looked like it would be in the ballpark. But, uh, you know, there are, I, I would emphasize that my, I was being very picky as far as I was trying to get a very good match to my specific requirements, as well as having some ability in the future to expand. Um, but there are a lot of really great, you know, devices out there that are made by all the usual players, Belkin and Pl Pluggable and all the rest of them. So right. I went online and I looked for something that I thought was in the range, the price range that I wanted that had at least, you know, 90 or 95% of the features. So what was your price range? Oh, well, after I kind of did a benchmark, I, I figured it was going to be around 200, 250 that, that's bucks. That's not bad, because uh, when I was buying docks, and I've tested six of them so far, I think now I, it, they were more like 300 So uh, being able to find one more in the $200 price range is pretty cool. Now, when I looked at docks, I found that a lot of them were long, flat boxes that took up a, a whole bunch of real estate. And I didn't want that because I don't want junk on my desk, right? I wanted something small. And uh, I think you went the same route, right? Yeah, I did. And and there are kind of two different categories, I would say, that were the most prevalent when you look online. And that is, one is the one that you're talking about, which is kind of, it's smaller, it's thinner, but it's more planar. Right. And then there's the other one, which is more of the upright, it's blockier. Like, almost like a, a thick book. <laughs> right. Right. And so... 
it turned out that I preferred that too, because I wanted to minimize the footprint on my desk. Um, and that was the direction I eventually, I started filtering on that once I found, you know, a way to do that. Okay. So I'm going to make fun of the name of the company, but what's the name of the doc? What's the company you went with? Well, honestly, I don't know how to pronounce it, but I, I will phonetically call it, uh, Tobanon. It uh, looks like Toblerone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was, I, I had a trouble because, uh, I saw it as part of one of my first searches and then I misspelled it. And so I kept searching and I couldn't find couldn't it. Find it again. And then eventually I realized what I'd done wrong. So it's T O B E N O N E. So it could be Tobinone. It depends on his. Your, your guess is, is as Italian? good as mine. Is it Japanese? <laughs> where, are we, where are we going? Tobinone. I'm assuming it's somewhere in Asia, but, um, you know. Uh, <laughs> That's where you ended up. Okay. So how much was the Tobinone? It was a little over $200 okay. from, from Amazon. That's pretty good. And I did actually try to uh, more directly buy it without Amazon because I, I was looking around and uh, it turned out that it seems like they're exclusively selling through only a couple of outlets and Amazon was one of them. I've started to notice that where it's just like, no, I want to really go to the company, see who they are, check it out. It's like, you are an Amazon company. That is all <laughs> you are, which is, that's real interesting. I mean, I guess... If you don't want to do any marketing, don't want to make your own website, I mean, I guess that's the way you can go, right? Well, it was interesting because um, they do have a, a nice little website, um, but it does not have more than the basic information, and I could not find a way, at least at that time, to order directly from them. Huh. Okay. Well, nothing wrong with that. I know I'm supposed to hate Amazon, but I really don't. I really, really <laughs> like Amazon. I, I should hate it. I mean, I know there's reasons, but I, I just really like it. Makes it nice. All right, so talk about the experience. You unpack the uh, the Tobinot, you get the box out of the freezer, and what happens? <laughs> I get the box from from Amazon, um, open it up. There is this really. I was kind of impressed immediately at the quality of you know. It's a solid box, aluminum, I think. Um, very solid. It had. It looked exactly like the photograph. Um, it was actually a little smaller than I thought it okay. would be. And um, it was very, it, well, there were a couple of things. First of all, it also included, I believe, three adapters that I didn't know were going oh, to be Oh, no included. way. Yes. Okay, so, so there was a what did you need? HDMI to display port, because it had a display port, but not HDMI, so that oh. was immediately useful to me. Yeah, that's critical, because you needed it for the 32-inch uh, display you have. Right, and then there were, there were two more, and I don't honestly remember right now because I didn't need to use them, but okay. that was a nice bonus because they didn't mention that as far as I could see in the literature. Okay. Okay. So you figured you're going to have to buy a, a an HDMI to display port adapter or come over to my house and we would, <laughs> Ron and I go to each other's houses and just dig around looking for cables and connectors. And one of my favorite stories, I know I'm going off topic here, but uh, one of my favorite stories was I needed a resistor to, to, um, close the 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 circuit on a on a uh, mac mini a hundred years ago i needed to run it headless and it expected a monitor to be on it and the only way you could get around it was you could you actually stick a, a resistor in it and i thought i know he's got resistors ron has resistors and you let me i i got into gar your garage because you you left a key for me uh but you weren't home and I go into his garage and he's got this, it's like going to Radio Shack, going to Ron's house. It's awesome. So anyway, I'm digging around, I'm looking at these and Ron honked the horn on his Tesla while I was crouched down right next to it. Scared the pants off me. <laughs> 
testing the remote from yeah. 3,000 miles away. Yeah, that was awesome. I, I Thanks. <laughs> throw those shorts away. But anyway. <laughs> so anyway, I, op- I opened it up. I, I took stock of everything. Um, it was a breeze to set it up. You, you know, plug in the power cord pretty much. And then uh, from there, I, I literally started migrating uh, cables over and testing everything incrementally as I went. Oh, good. And I, I was actually somewhat surprised because you're, you're always expecting something flaky. Sure. Um, and everything uh, is fiddly. Everything is fiddly. And honestly, I can say that every every step of the way, it worked exactly the way it was supposed to until I had completely migrated everything over. I plugged it, you know, all in directly. It has the single input into the Thunderbolt on the computer and everything works. So I I did a a port mapping of of my TS3 Plus from CalDigit to yours, and it's real interesting because uh, one of the reasons I chose the CalDigit was because it had so many ports, and I think you have essentially the equivalent number of ports, but in some cases faster ports, and some cases slower and minor in the middle, something like that. But uh, do you mind if I run down all the uh, ports you got on here? Sure. All right, so what you have here is, uh, first of all, uh, Thunderbolt for connecting the computer over uh, USB-C, right? That's a critical element. And then uh, it says it provides 65 watts charging for the MacBook Pro. That's fine, though, even though the MacBook Pro wants 100 watts? Uh, For me, it's been fine. It's kept it charged the whole time. Okay, so we don't have to worry about that. You're the electrical engineer. That works (laughs) fine, right? So far, so good. All right. So you've got a uh, you're you're living the one the one Thunderbolt port one USB C cable life that's great, uh, but you've also got two 10 gigabits per second USB C ports one 10 gigabit per second USB 3.1 port two 5 gigabit per second USB <laughs> 3.0 ports two USB 2.0 ports that is a lot of ports that's a a bunch of USB C a bunch of USB A um, I, I think it's good to have a bunch of USB A still. Maybe in a couple of years, we'll be done with USB-A, but I think that's a great way to go, right? It works really well for me. Um, I also have an external USB-A, not a dock, but a a hub. A hub? Okay. And so I plug into that using the one that's on the back. So some of these ports are on the front, some are on the back. Okay. A lot of the uh, USB-A ports are actually on the front for easier accessibility. Okay, cool. I like that as well. Yeah, it is nice to just, like, I don't know. I have a problem with my um, trackpad just not connecting to uh, to uh, Bluetooth immediately. Mm. And it's like, ah, <laughs> so I have to I have to plug it in real quick. That's why I like having one on the front. I plug it in, it goes, oh, oh, sorry, yeah, there I am. I'm <laughs> exactly. Good. And I unplug it and I'm done. But you want that on the front. And having some on the front is good. But having some on the back, not having to have it all over your desk on the front. Right. Um, do you care at all about the speed of those ports? To be honest, no, because most of the uh, peripherals that I do have, probably with the only exception would be the hard drives, don't drive a lot of data. I mean, even the webcam isn't driving a lot of data. And time machine's slow no matter what you do, so (laughs) it's not going to help. That's exactly right. So um, I I didn't pay much attention to that, except that uh, I'm also a little surprised that they have three speeds of USB-A port. Um, I'm not quite sure what happen there yeah yeah well they've got they've got enough of them uh so you've got an sd card uh slot micro sd card slot for uh for cameras and that kind of thing but you've also got a tf port what the heck is a tf port do you even know i do now (laughs) I, i didn't when i bought it um a tf is another type of a small card that is used in certain 
um, I guess like phones and things, but huh. I guess it never caught on. But for whatever reason, maybe it's popular in China or something, they decided that you know, they were going to throw one in. I'm going to get you a TF card for your birthday. <laughs> Just like, what, what am I going to do with this? Yeah. I don't know. I'll stick it in here and see what it does. Well, and so, you know, this is one of my caveats. This is one of the things that I, one of the couple of things that I have not verified because I don't have a TF card. So this is not a complete review. No. Jeez. No. You, do, you just do half-baked jobs, Ron. Uh, all right, so then you've got um, the display port for the external monitor with the HDMI adapter. You've got a, a three and a half millimeter audio jack. And then uh, digital audio out. Right. Do you use that? No. Yeah, me neither. That's the other one that I don't use and haven't verified. It's a standard optical format, um, but there's no reason for me to have it. So it, it came with the package. Didn't we use it on a receiver once here at the house sometime like 14 years ago? We did something, right? Yeah. There are a lot of audio files that still use it for uh, connecting some of their audio components, but yeah, that's it. I feel like, or maybe it had to do with a Mac Mini or a, uh, or what did the, or, oh no, did the early Apple TV have a digital optical out? It may have, yeah. That, that, it, it, it's kind of come and gone and come back again and I feel uh, like we played with it one time. Yeah, I mean, I had a CD player from Sony that had a uh, uh, you know, optical output, but then you need to spend like $10,000 on an optical amplifier, you know, amplifier <laughs> that has an optical input. So I never did that. Well, if you're really going to do a complete <laughs> review, first the TF port thing, and now and the now digital this. optical out, you're just, you're just doing a half big job, like I, I said. Know. All right. So the, the Tobin known or Tobin None <laughs> from, uh, from Amazon, I guess we're going to say, we'll put a link in the show notes. Of course, Ron's included a couple of photos so you can see all the port layout. Uh, and you're, you're a happy customer. You live in the one, uh, one device dream, right? It, it really has been a lot smoother than I expected. Um, I, I'm always, you know, I'm painfully aware of technology shortcomings and, um, I really, you know, without having ever bought anything from this company before, uh, it was a little bit of an unknown. But I will say that in this case, the Amazon uh, re reviewers came through for me. <laughs> it had a very high uh, review at the time anyway on Amazon, and that helped me to separate it from a couple of others. All right. So all of the uh, fake bot reviewers were, were actually <laughs> telling the truth. Yeah, all, all the Tobinon-funded uh, uh, reviews... <laughs> pushed me in the right direction. It worked out. Well, one last little bit. We don't, uh, we've been going on long enough. We probably shouldn't go on too much longer, but um, you're actually still using your iMac. Is that right? I am. I am because you made me aware of the Luna display, which is a very cool. Um, basically, it's like a dongle that you plug into one of your Macs and then either through Wi-Fi or through a Thunderbolt, uh, connection, you can uh, put another piece of software on the target Mac, just like the target mode that they used to have for the iMac. Right. And you can use its screen as the second monitor. So you didn't have to throw away your old iMac. You get I, to use it as a beautiful 5K display. I do. And I run it in parallel with that 32 inch Samsung, and it works tremendously well. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I loaned Ron my little uh, Luna display and he was like, hey, this it worked perfectly for him. So you've now still got your 27-inch 5K, you got the 32-inch Samsung, you're, you're bathed in screens. <laughs> I am. And if I wanted to, I'm using the 
the MacBook Pro in a clamshell mode, but if I wanted to open that screen up, I could actually support all three screens at the same time. That's fantastic. You know, I do that. I keep it open. It's like, why do I want to get rid of another 14 <laughs> inches? I could put stuff over there. You know, it's kind of like my, my let me set shove this stuff off my desk onto a secondary table for a little while screen. Well, I'm not, I'm not quite at your level yet, but maybe, <laughs> you know, if I grow into it. All right, Ron, uh, it's, it's lovely to hear from you again. I owe you dinner now. <laughs> well, this has been fun as usual, and I uh, hope that uh, folks got a little bit of an idea about uh, this docking station. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Did you know you can email me anytime you like at allison at podfeet.com? If you have a question or a suggestion, just send it on over. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. If you want to join in the fun of the conversation, you can join our Slack community because everything good starts with podfeet.com. You know it's at podfeet.com slash Slack. In there, you can talk to me and all of the other lovely no-sell castaways. You can support the show like Michael and Dex by going to podfeet.com slash Patreon or with a one-time donation at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Priscilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.